Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. Hi, everyone. I am your host, Humpty Calderon. And today I'm talking to Jack DeRose, co-founder at Colony. This incredible conversation starts with an exploration of a system of rules that allows ants to work together and produce sophisticated problem solving and how that is an inspiration for Colony. We continue with a conversation about the open and flexible framework that allows you to start an organization, give it structure, incentivize contributors, award reputation, and manage funds, all without writing a single line of code. Let's get started. So the way that I like to kick off these discussions is to learn a little bit about yourself and to learn about your crypto journey. Cool. Yeah. So I had, uh, I think most people come to crypto from sort of fairly random places. Um, in my case, I used to be a jewelry designer. I made super high-end, super fancy jewelry for super high-end, super fancy people. Um, the most well-known thing that I did, which some people may have seen, um, was a $100 million diamond skull for the artist Damien Hirst, which I think at the time maybe still is the costliest piece of art ever made. Um, and so it was a pretty, it's a pretty random um, journey, I suppose, to get into, into crypto, which was really just that I'm, I was always a nerd working in the sort of luxury industry. Um, so I was working on computers all the time and therefore... I discovered Tor and the dark web and Bitcoin. Um, thought that all that stuff was was very interesting, but I didn't see something I needed it for at that time. I wasn't planning to get a hit on anyone or anything like that. So um, I I pretty much forgot about Bitcoin for a little while until I saw the price had gone from a few a few cents, I think it was when I first saw it, to a few dollars, and then thought, ah, I've missed the boat, and so I forgot about it again. And then uh, saw it again and it got up to $30 and uh, thought, I'd, again, I'd missed out. <laughs> so, and so my journey with it continued until eventually I, I did actually buy into Bitcoin, uh, which was at the very top of the market for that at that point. I think it was up to $267 when I bought some Bitcoin. And then it promptly crashed back down to $70 or so, really as soon as I bought it. So um, I got, uh, you know, the... the the traditional sort of um, introduction by fire to the crazy roller coaster of crypto speculation. Um, but at the same time, I was also trying to get myself out of my jewelry business. I realized that um, I enjoyed the sort of problem solving side of, of my work and that I was making really complicated things that were intellectually stimulating. But I got to the point where I was I was running my own brand basically, which revolved me do, around me doing a lot of salesy type stuff. And uh, I'm an introverted nerd. I'm, I'm not good at being out there in the world, dealing with fancy people like ladies who lunch. And um, 
and I, I just couldn't stand it. I needed to get out. <laughs> but at the same time, I didn't want to kind of turn my back on it entirely because it had been sort of hard won to get to that position. Um, so I was trying to figure out whether I could find a sort of software approach to making my company self-organized. So I was kind of unpacking all of the reasons why it was hard, all the reasons why I didn't like it, how I could get rid of some of those things and and really sort of fade away into the background because I, I'd made it such that it was really reliant on me. Um, and that was really my first thinking around. It was just solving my own problem. And then gradually over time as I tried to solve this problem of causing a, pe- a bunch of people who don't have aligned incentives to be able to work together without needing to trust one another or even necessarily know one another, I kind of realized that I was onto something much bigger than my own jewelry business because this was like back in 2013. And there was real potential for this as a a concept to grow in the world. And, um, And so I ceased to care about whether I threw away the previous years of, of work of setting up my business and um, because this was just so much more rewarding um, and uh, and yeah and then I discussed and then I think it was December 2013 I read Vitalik's white paper for Ethereum so you know it was really hot off the press at that point it's like a month old um, and that was really the point that crystallized everything in my mind and 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 made me confident to throw everything uh, throw caution to the wind and uh, back myself in this in this endeavor because I could see that other people in the world were starting to think along the same lines it sounds like even from the very beginning you were coming at you know bitcoin and 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 all of this space blockchain cryptocurrencies from the technology angle right you were interested in how it could help you know in terms of its development technological development uh, and help people. And it sounds like even back in 2013, when you were planning this shift, right, from, I guess, your real world or this long career that, that, that you, you, you developed and that, and that you kind of grew into, um, you had an idea of what colony could be in terms of coordination, right? Um, right. So I, yeah. I really do want to come back to that because I, I, I'm always interested in learning that aha moment, that inspiration, right? Like that source where where things culminated. It was like, you know what? There's a need here and I don't know what this is going to be, but I need to at least start working out this problem. I think that's really cool. But let's rewind and go back to that skull because I, I did just pull it up and that is incredible, man. I mean, and talk about challenging stuff. That seems extremely complex and beautiful for something so macabre. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that was it was um it was definitely difficult. It was um nobody had any idea how to make it, which is why they eventually came to me. That basically the artist Damien Hurst had gone to a uh, a jewelry shop on Bond Street in, in, in London, which is kind of the the um well the road where all the really super expensive jewelers are. are. Um and they had obviously seen uh, pound signs flash up before their eyes at the prospect of this, and so obviously took it took it on, but then panicked because they didn't know how to do it. And so there was uh, a series of phone calls I needed to understand around the jewelry industry and trying to find somebody who could figure it out. 
and um, eventually it came to me as somebody who might be able to, and I had no idea how to do it, but I knew that I had the, uh, the moxie to figure it out. For anyone who knows me, that is one of the things that I live by is figure it out, right? I mean, life is just a series of challenges, and it really is a matter of how you figure those challenges out and find solutions that work for you. I think there's definitely like two kinds of people in the world. There's, there's the people who, who just go, well, I, I haven't been trained to do that. I don't know how to do that. I can't do it. And then there's those who just say, well, I, I will figure it out then. Well, that's entirely, yeah. And that's a philosophical thing, right? I mean, I think a lot of times maybe we just subscribe to methodologies that have been uh, either assigned to us or that we've been trained to follow. And it's difficult to per perceive of any other way because you're like, well, this is just the way. I mm. go to school and I'm trained for this. Then I specialize, specialize in that. And then I just keep focusing on that. And you don't see how it's possible for you to be able to actually take on some of these challenges and find solutions for yourself, which I think is that's that's the incredible part of just this entire space is everything mm. is a challenge. Everything is new. And as new solutions are discovered, new challenges come up too. I feel like DAOs are kind of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not, maybe, maybe almost a symptom of a change in the way the world is is thinking about about work and about livelihoods and about how we find meaning in our existence and uh, how we find um, um, sort of uh, value in in what we do in in career and in identity and all of these kind of things because for the longest time people had got people were on rails in their life and their career right you go to school you do well at school you then perhaps go to university and do well in university and then you go to go and get a good job and then you are on that career path to the point that you have saved enough money that you can retire and then that's it, you die. And uh, it's a strange linear existence that I find terrifying, actually. And it seems like more and more people are rejecting that those rails that, that sort of constrain one's life and are you know, yearning for freedom and yearning for choice and yearning for the ability to to be a full person and express their interests and capabilities fully in the way that they work as uh, as well as in the way that they sort of live other areas of their lives. And that's that's not been something that um, careers have traditionally been set up for. You're a cog in a machine, and that machine is optimized for production. And how you fit into that is kind of immaterial outside of the fact that you're doing your job sufficiently well. Yeah, no, certainly. So, I think um, it flips it on its times. head, right? Right. Awesome. Well, so in, I, I think we touched on uh, a little bit about yourself, which I thank you for that, for sharing your story. Um, and you also touched a bit, like I said, in terms of the inspiration moment that like, you know, here's a problem I think I find incredibly valuable. It, it speaks to me, right? And that is coordination. Uh, and then how can you, this technology potentially improve that? And then you read the white paper and that kind of inspired you to, to take that leap of faith, if you will. Um, so how, how did that idea continue to evolve? Because 2013 was quite a bit ago and, 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 and crypto years, I mean, that's like, you know, prehistoric times. It's beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that, how did that keep like, eating at the back of your brain and as technology continued to evolve, 
became or at least inspired what a colony has become? Yeah, well, we got started on it pretty early, actually. We, Myself and my co-founder, Alex, who joined me after his astrophysics PhD at Cambridge, um, uh, he, yeah, he and I started working on an initial prototype um, way back when, presented it at DEF CON 1 in London, which was a radically different thing than we've got now. It was incredibly naive, actually, uh, somewhat embarrassing, so please, nobody go and dig that out on YouTube. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned in one of our earlier conversations uh, the extent to which ants are an inspiration for colony, which which they absolutely are, um, because for avoidance of doubt, um, the name colony is about ant colonies, not about colonialism, which is, is definitely not our jam. Um, because actually ants are um, a really good example of what is actually the dominant organizational and coordinational paradigm of of the universe really which is something called complex adaptive systems and in a complex adaptive system you have a series of relatively simple rules which when put together um, cause complex sophisticated uh, behavior to emerge so in the case of things like ants even though no individual ant is uh, has any intelligence really much the same as no individual neuron in the brain has any intelligence it's the system of rules that allows those ants or neurons to work together that produces the sophisticated problem solving of which they're capable so ants for example um, are able to solve what are known as np hard problems um, such as the traveling salesman problem or finding, or, or finding a way to uh, effectively thermoregulate their nest by creating um, um, systems of, of, of vents and, and heat-captured um, areas. Uh, so it's, it's really fascinating to me that they're capable of doing that as a, as a result of the system of rules. So really that was the inspiration for Colony, and can we, can we um, put together a piece of software which constrains people's behavior such that they are able to effectively collaborate together, effectively control funds together and make sort of consequential, ultimately financial decisions together without anybody needing to know or trust one another, just as ants don't need to know or trust the other ants in the colony. Um, they just need to know that the rules are, well, they don't even need to know that the rules are in place that um, causes their existence to be as secure as it is. As it is. Well, that's that's incredible. I mean, there, I mean, there's something to be said in terms of the collective intelligence, as as you are uh, explaining this. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, ants are ants are pretty cool. So, <laughs> and also, I ants think in cool. terms of in terms of you know reinforcing that uh, connection to ants and separating it from colonialism, which it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of thematic, uh, you know, products. So like uh, our naming conventions. So maybe the token is just ants and people just go, oh, I get it. There's a connection there. You know, it's colony, <laughs> yeah, but it's all about be. ants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you, you brought up another, another point that I've heard you talk about before. And I think it's worth uh, exploring a bit in terms of this whole, uh, you know, idea of how uh, ants play into this and the, the actual problem that's being solved in terms of, you know, terms of what colony is and that's that traveling salesman problem and i and i and i've heard you also use 
well, maybe not this word, but you know, I inferred from this like optimal routing, right? So can you talk a little bit about that and what that means generally and how that how that is solved through colony? Okay. I don't think it's really solved through colony, but it's it's interesting nevertheless, so I'll explain it, which is that um, ants are able to find the optimal foraging path uh, when they're when they're searching for food, right? So they do this by a really very simple but effective mechanism. And this traveling salesman problem is actually a hard problem of computer science that took quite a long time for computer science to solve. And ultimately, I believe it was done by, um, by um, simulating ant colonies. And so what ants do is they go out wandering around randomly um, looking for food. And as they are walking anywhere, they are laying a pheromone trail down. And that pheromone trail decays over time. So they randomly walk, finding their way to food. And then once they find food, they travel back along their pheromone trail. So what that means is that the shortest path is going to have the strongest pheromone trail because they are laying the pheromone trail back as they walk back to their nest. And because that's the strongest one, that attracts other ants to it that, again, reinforce that pheromone trail by, by walking along it and laying it down and strengthening it. Um, and so once that is exhausted, then by the same mechanism, they move on to the next nearest uh, to their nest. Um, so it's just it's a very simple mechanism, but it works really well. And it was not that that is not a mechanism which is meaningfully in play anywhere in colony, but rather simply these generalized principles of simple rules leading to complex emergent behavior um, was the inspiration for colony. Well, it almost also sounds like one of the challenges within that and that behavior in terms of the shortest path wins is about efficiency, right? Right. And so in my experience working with Colony and with my conversations that I've had with you and with Daniel in the past, I think that Colony was built to be efficient, right? And that plays into uh, you know how it works in terms of governance, uh, both in terms of voting, uh, and also in terms of how individuals can set up payments and and all of that, which we're going to dive into. Uh, so I think that that's 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 really interesting too. Although it's not necessarily playing directly into that, the traveling salesman problem isn't you know necessarily solved, or it's not being um, you know trying to be solved through colony. There's that inherent you know, uh, issue, which is how can we find the best, the way to be the most efficient and colony has then chosen to go a certain path, which I think is an interesting one, because I think you've mentioned it before in terms of voting, that's probably something that can be, uh, done in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a, I guess, lazier way. And I think that's your word. So not mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Well, so so I, I don't know if I think the ants are truly efficient. I think there's, and I don't know that DAOs really can be truly efficient because I think that there's a certain amount of chaos. As I mentioned, there's, there's this one random wondering that, that is the precursor to finding these, uh, optimal routes, um, 
and I, th- I find I think that's kind of the strength of them as well um, is that they are sort of very resilient to any of those uh, any of the individual parts of it being being interfered with as I think Dias will ultimately prove to be. Um, but they are they are effective, and and that's what I think I'd rather hope that Colony flavored Dias will prove to be is effective rather than. Because you know, there's not a whole lot of dicking around in a, in a in an ant colony. But from what I've seen of many dives, there's a huge amount of dicking around. There's a huge amount of bike shedding that goes on, particularly around decision making. And there, they are uh, a lot of a lot of time and energy gets made into making decisions um, that can be made a lot more quickly and efficiently, and without you know herding all the cats to participate in a vote, for example. Yeah. No. I think. I mean, if I guess the what what it's trying to achieve is it's trying to get some efficiency in a very inefficient environment because decentralization right. is very inefficient, right? Vis-a-vis right. DAOs yeah. are going to be inefficient. So it's a, a, yeah. a way to try to bring some of that efficiency from these cent- centralized systems into these decentralized systems. At least that's how right. I see it, yeah. And, and even without the benefit of, of sort of decentralized software to, to mediate it, Actually, the kinds of organizations that we're talking about here are, are not really anything particularly new. There's all sorts of organizations that are already operating in ways which are rather similar to DAOs, uh, in ways that many people might find surprising. So actually, Google is one of them. And uh, if you go and work at Google, one of the things that you'll be told as you discover that this is not a place of um, unbelievable efficiency and, and hierarchy is actually an extremely disorganized uh, and jumbled place. Um, is that I, th- I think I'm quoting here um, that we will tolerate a surprising amount of chaos to eliminate a surprising amount of bureaucracy. And I think that's kind of the benefit that we hope to see in, in a lot of DAOs as well is yeah, there'll be a lot of heat getting made by a lot of action going on, but but also that that sort of lack of um, uh, oversight or the lack of structured hierarchy is what will enable um, us to avoid a lot of the bureaucratic nonsense. Well, so I guess we we've now kind of touched on a lot of the abstract of what is colony. In a few words, how would you explain to someone who's never heard of you know colony? about what it is and, you know, the problems it seeks to solve. Okay. So this is, um, this is a a really hard question. (laughs) Uh, And this was a question I was repeatedly having to answer in the early days um, before anybody knew what a DAO was. And, uh, and now I can just say, what is a DAO framework? And that makes, uh, that makes sufficient sense to enough people that it makes my life easier. But, um, before it was, it was very much like kind of going, uh, well, just having to explain from first principles, you know, what is a blockchain? What does that mean that you can possibly do? And, and how could you create organizations as a result of it? But, but yeah, that's what Colony is. It's a framework for organizations, isn't it? Um, and it's intended to provide all of the tools that an organization would need to operate without anybody needing to know or trust one another, and importantly, to do so in an effective fashion. Um, And to kind of 
unpack our thinking there a little bit, I just want to sort of take a step back to Economics 101 and um, the theory of the firm, which is sort of an explanation of why organizations exist at all, which is that in, in principle, it's possible for you to um, coordinate supply of anything entirely via the market. So entirely by um, finding different suppliers out there in the world that can do different parts that you need. Um, the reason why firms exist, why organizations exist, is because of something called transaction costs. So these are all of the sort of implied costs of having to specify what you need to have done, go out and find suppliers, compare the value proposition of those different suppliers, um, agree to terms, manage the delivery of these things, um, manage changes in the specification, uh, agree to contracts, manage disputes, all of these kinds of things that you ordinarily need to do when working with outside contractors. Um, and yeah, so there's a point at which it makes more sense economically for you to have all of the factors of production or, or certain of the factors of production inside the organization that they're available to do what they need to do um, on an as-needed basis versus going out and doing this um, discovery and contracting process all the time. And then, and then we've got DAOs, and DAOs are sort of inherently having to coordinate supply via the market mechanism. So what's very important is that a DAO has the requisite tools to be able to decrease those transaction costs as much as possible. Because as it stands, if in that sort of naive sense, all of those transaction costs would apply all of the time. And that's absolutely what we don't want. So we want to get it down to being as efficient as a firm or a traditional organization could be, whilst at the same time providing all the flexibility and, um, and uh, openness that we want both of modern organizations and of decentralized organizations. So that's what Colony is designed to do. That's, what, that, that's kind of the bedrock of our, of our thinking that we, we test against when designing any particular mechanism. Right. And I mean, for anybody who's explored the product, what I'm seeing is almost a product that puts together the framework for the operation of an organization uh, where individuals can be empowered to take on certain roles and then for an organization to be able to, in as much of a decentralized way, to then uh, incentivize the participation, the, or the contributions of individuals uh, for the growth of that, of, of that, of that DAO. So I think, yeah, absolutely. and you know, and I think what I'm seeing is it, it's almost like, I guess what you would see in a traditional business, but it would be a lot more centralized with where only a few have access to those roles and only a few have access to that information. It's not very transparent. Whereas, you know, in a DAO and through colony, you're able to operate similarly um, but, you know, in a decentralized way uh, and in an organized yeah. way. Well, I, actually, I think that there are many, many uh, existing non-on, sort of off-chain, ordinary organizations that are trying to operate in this more responsive um, paradigm of distributed authority. So it's not something which is in any way unique to DAOs. And, and actually, many of these uh 
most of these companies that are, are operating this way are doing so in a far more sophisticated fashion than any on-chain organization is. But the thing that makes an on-chain organization particularly special is that whereas in um, in an off-chain organization, the authority vests within people in a sort of um, by agreement, right? It's because everybody is accepting of the rules. In an on-chain organization, it really is baked hard into the process. And if you want it to be, there are, there are no exceptions to it. There's no fallback to, to somebody with more authority. There's only fallback to the rules that the protocol enables. And so the authority is truly and transparently distributed amongst the organization. And I, I think that, that the concreteness of that is really compelling. So let's walk through the product itself um, mm -hmm. and talk about some of the, I guess, organizational features that are built into it um, okay. and, and how that facilitates this coordination. Yeah. So can you introduce maybe some of a very high level what some of these, um, you know, features are and, and how they facilitate that organization uh, between members? Sure. So I think that there's, well, there's several important facets. Of course, the first is the token. So the token is uh, every colony has its own native token. You can either easily create a new one when creating a colony DAO, or you can bring one that you've already got. And that token is what confers reputation on people. So when you get paid out in that colony's native token, you receive an equal number of reputation points. So receive 100 tokens, you receive 100 reputation points. In uh, other DAO frameworks that I'm aware of, the challenge of you only having um, tokens as the basis of decision-making is that it is homogenous and you can't differentiate between people. You can really only have proposals. You can have proposals about different things that address a different subset of token holders because all you really know about an account is that it has a certain amount of tokens. And that's therefore the basis upon which you uh, weight decisions. And we don't, just generally don't think that that is adequate for most organizational decision making. Most organizations don't make the, all their operational decisions um, by their shareholders voting on things. So in Colony, what we're trying to do is to replicate the executive authority that you, you have in traditional organizations by virtue of the seniority that you have within that organization in particular spheres. So if you are, you know, you've worked your way up to the position of being the head of design in an organization, you have a lot of influence over what happens in design, but you don't have a great deal of influence about what happens in the, in the accounting department or in the HR department because you haven't demonstrated that you know anything about those areas. So again, that's how it works in Colony. And it works that way because we have something else called domains or, or teams as they are in the app. Um, and a domain or team can be, well, whatever you want it to be in the context of your organization. It could be the engineering team or department. It could be different projects that you work on, different circles. However, your organization chooses to compartmentalize its activities 
you can create a domain for that. And when you get paid in that domain for having done something that was valuable in that domain, you receive um, an equivalent number of reputation points. And that reputation is, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, accessible or relevant uh, only within that domain. That's right. But it sums up the organization. So if you imagine, if you imagine it as uh, looking down on it as, as circles, so you've got the big circle, which is the organization overall. We call that the root. Uh, and that's for decisions which pertain to the organization as a whole, things that matter to everybody. I suppose you could think of it as like the boardroom or something like that of the organization. And then within that, you'd have sub-circles, perhaps for engineering, design, marketing, research, whatever it is. And then in the future, you'll be able to have um, teams within that. So you'll be able to nest them arbitrarily deeply within one another as well. Okay. Cross-functioning um, teams, I imagine? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, okay. totally. Absolutely. And so, yeah, you earn reputation in any one of those teams. And if you earn reputation in a child, you also earn it in parents. So imagine if you've got root as in the organization overall, and then you've got design within that and got illustration with that, and then manga within that, let's say, um, if you're a particularly niche organization, um, you would be earning, if you've done some manga illustration, you would uh, have earned reputation in manga and in illustration and in design and in the organization overall. Um, so it, 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 it works yeah. upwards in that, in, in, in that gra graph or the, however you that's want right. to talk about exactly. that. Okay, great. That makes exactly. sense. Wow. That's incredibly yeah. powerful. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That, that adds um, a ton of value for individuals, both uh, pertaining to just their, you know, very, very specific uh, contributions, but, you know, doesn't exclude them from the overall, um, I guess, mechanism of the group as a whole or the DAO as a whole. Right, exactly. And so all this reputation that people are earning by, by doing these things in these different sub-teams um, sub of the organization or sub-DAOs, as some people call them, um, enables you to have a really sort of heterogeneous organization where there's a lot of things going on separate from one another, which don't really need to bother the other teams because, you know, if you're, if you're a developer, you probably don't care too much about what's going on in the illustration part of the organization or the, you know, creating memes or whatever. Those guys need to get on with what they're doing on their own isolation from what the devs are doing. You don't need all of this to be jumbled together and, and having to bother everybody with it. And the, the general thinking is that the, the further down you go uh, down the sort of domain hierarchy, the less consequential it is, so the faster things can be. So I would imagine that you would have um, the root of the organization ultimately in most DAOs being a place which is relatively cautious. And, um, and then you have an increasing sort of permissiveness the further to the edges of the organization you go because the stakes are just getting lower and lower the, the, the further the funds get divided. So it could be that you have um, you know, hybrid weighted decision-making taking place in the roots, which is uh, what we call both the reputation holders and the token holders need to agree to what happens. So, so sort of super um, conservative. And then at the edges of the organization, 
perhaps you just don't have any formal consensus mechanism at all, but rather in these sort of peripheral teams, people have the full permission to access those funds um, because it's they're completely trusted to to manage those small amounts of funds. And that enables those decisions to take place at the very edges of the organization with the who are really doing the work instantly without you needing to go through any um, any voting process or any on-chain governance process at all. Uh, I really think that's what we need to get to as DAOs. We need to be able to combine both agility and and security of widespread consensus. Yeah. And I think it's important to clarify how that reputation is earned, uh, because I don't think we've touched on that. Yeah, sure. So it's earned any time you payment from the colony. So right now we've just got a simple payment mechanism, um, which is, you know, just like sending it from a multi-sig effectively. Um, but there's future functionality coming along, which is for both more sophisticated types of um, of expenditures of payments, um, but also for tasks in which you have got people who are assigned as the project manager's task to ensure that there is delivery somebody who's assigned to be uh, the worker for the task, delivering the actual work, and somebody who's assigned to do QA on the work to determine the, the quality standard of it. And I also think it's important to note, you you make sure you talk about this, that the reputation isn't the token itself, right? That's simply an attribute that's rewarded to you through that contribution or through that uh, you know uh, token uh, remuneration, if you will. The tokens can be transferable, but the reputation is not transferable. Right. It's an attribute associated with an account, and really importantly, it decays over time. So this, this decay function is where I think is one of the most important things about how decision-making takes place in Colony, because it really helps to uh, ensure that the authority within an organization stays decentralized and therefore the stays autonomous. Um, because with, with token-weighted decision-making, the tokens tend to go to the earliest and largest token holders by virtue of them being the earliest, largest investors and the founding teams. And then you have a sort of power law distribution of, of tokens in which the long tail over time gets longer because the smaller token holders become more numerous. Um, but it's much harder for a large number of people to coordinate than a small number of people to coordinate. But with reputation decay, um, if you have done something three months ago and then have done nothing else in the intervening period, your reputation is going to be worth half as much as it was back then because it's decayed away. And assuming that everybody else has continued to contribute, you're going to have less influence. Um, or indeed, as more people start to contribute, the reputation becomes more diffuse throughout the organization. So um, this, this makes it possible for people who come later to the organization to earn a fair amount of influence. I think that's particularly important for something like, um, well, I mean, I think Bankless DAO is a great example of it because there are people coming and going all the time. And you never know when the next great talent is going to show up. Um, and I think for things where the decision-making is so frictional and so, so just difficult to get into, 
it's an incredible disincentive to people paying any attention because they can they can never really get any influence. Um, in the case of um, a token-based decision-making, because they would have to have so much money to be able to buy that um, that, that decision authority. But in, in Colony, that's, that's not the way it works at all. And just by somebody who's really good, contributes a lot, um, you'll be able to earn a fair amount of influence because the amount of influence that people have is always sort of normalized or sort of recalculating to to um, represent people's recent contributions. Yeah. And I think it's it's valuable to recognize, you know, the contributions of early founders and early members. But, you know, if, if we going back to like trying to replicate the way the real world works, you know, as a startup grows, develops, matures, it attracts talent, a lot of times better talent, that was there when yes, it first started, right? So yeah, totally. Is it usually it's the best talent comes comes <laughs> right. later on when it's more successful? Right, exactly. Because I mean, this initial talent really is just executing on initial ideas, but it doesn't mean that those first ideas are going to be what differentiate and catapult that organization into long-term success. It's the continued generation of ideas and execution. Um, and then innovation, and then adapting to you know market situations that allow that to become a valuable organization. And so I think what you're saying, and in terms of what Colony recognizes, is how can we continue to incentivize the growth and membership of these organizations, right? And then you know, and, and then listen, you know, and value their voice, like make sure that they they're ongoing contributions and participation is recognized in the decision-making that affects this organization moving forward. Absolutely. And I think you made a really good point about that the, the initial founders um, are the one, and the initial investors take the most risk because there's nothing there to begin with. Um, and and so, so they're taking a, a very large risk by putting their time and energy of their one human life into this, this thing. Um, and so they should be fairly compensated for it. So I, I think that works perfectly well in, in Colony because the assumption is that the token is rel- worth relatively little to begin with. And then over time, as the organization becomes more successful presume, and, and generates more revenue, presumably, um, the token will appreciate in value. So what you got paid in the token for doing the work uh, in the early days is going to be far more tokens than you would get paid in the token three years later. But, uh, and so there you are, you're compensated for the uh, early risk that you took. But after three years, and you know, somebody else coming in when the token is 100 x um, because you're now going to be earning, t- earning tokens and reputation at that 100 x price, um, everybody's reputation is going to be sort of normalizing to represent the recent um, value of the token. So everybody gets to have an appropriate amount of influence, even though you, by virtue of the greater risk took as as a founder, have many more tokens. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like a counterbalance, right? The like quantity versus quality in terms of the quantity of tokens versus the quality of your contributions and your ongoing contributions. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Can you... uh, Maybe just 
briefly or as briefly as possible talk about voting within colony and how that works because we're talk we're, we're talking currently about reputation and 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 remuneration and how that's an incentive but then how does all of that play into the voting mechanisms within colony okay sure so yeah our system is what we call lazy consensus which is a term that we took from apache uh, who also in their community operate by a lazy consensus, which basically just means that people can get on with the work and uh, you don't have to get consensus for everything. Um, but people can object if they really if they really disagree with something and don't think it should happen, then they can object to it. Um, and that's what we have seen is, is a, a more useful approach for most DAOs. So consensus formation tends to happen in most DAOs off-chain. People are having conversations, um, team meetings, discussions in their forums or, or, or Discord or whatever, um, and agreement about certain things emerges in there. And then with the current DAO frameworks that people are using, there is then a whole cat herding process that takes place of getting all the token holders to participate in the vote to get to quorum to enable something to happen. That's just a lot of wasted energy. So in Colony, we really lean into the fact that decision make the, the, the consensus really forms off-chain and the on-chain processes are really just there to ratify a decision that's already been taken. So in Colony, we imagine that the vast majority of decentralized decision-making takes place, um, at least in a, in a healthy organization, without any vote ever taking place. So that happens by somebody creating what we call a motion, which is the same as a proposal, really. Um, and then that's it. Somebody creates a proposal, they stake it to say to put their money where their mouth is, that this is something that should happen. Incidentally, that stake can be provided by many people. It can be crowdsourced if you desire it to be. Um, and, and then as long as nobody objects to it within the sort of security delay period, there's the staking phase, as we call it, then the motion will pass and um, the action can be taken. So if you've, say, decided to pay $1,000 to somebody for having done some piece of work, as long as nobody objects to that person getting paid this amount, then um, after seven days, let's say, they'll be able to just claim those funds. So it's, it's, it's very, very simple. Um, however, if somebody does make a motion that you think is inappropriate, perhaps it's not what has been agreed or seems malicious potentially, you can object to it. And people are incentivized to be, to be uh, inspecting everything, all the motions that are being made, and fishing for things that seem out of place. Because if you find something that you think seems like a specious um, motion, you can stake against it. You object, stake against it, and that will cause a vote to take place. And then if you're right, you will be earning, you'll be winning um, a share of the stake of the, the person who created the motion. So you're incentivized to go and find these things that seem out of place. And you're incentivized to make sure you put forth good motions, right? There's a pe that's a penalty mechanism. So the penalty is, is proportional to the outcome. So if it was a landslide in favor of, of the person who came and found something that was obvious, obviously malicious and everybody agreed, 
then the person who created that motion would lose all of their. If it was more contentious, and let's say it was 49-51, then the losing side uh, is going to lose just a very small amount of their stake. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of penalty mechanisms or because <laughs> I think that for for the longest time it's it's been really open and um you know in terms of that uh, the ability to do things without any accountability. Um right. and a lot of I times it isn't the dangerous in, best in way a dying context. Things. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got shared funds, you need to uh you need to have accountability for your actions. Well, um I wanted to thank you. Jack, so much for your time, first of all, for coming in here and, and, and talking with us about, you know, what is Colony and sharing your story, um, introducing the product. I think that this is a wonderful tool. Just based on my experience, I think that there's a ton of uh, use case and uh, I, I do foresee uh, good growth and adoption for Colony into the future. Well, thank you for having me. This has been it's always a pleasure to talk. That's it. I personally found this discussion incredibly inspiring as it provides a high-level perspective on DAOs, including emergent behavior, in addition to a deep dive into the inspiration for Colony and how it can facilitate the organization of Web3 communities. If you'd like to learn more about Colony, go to colony.io and on Twitter at joincolony. Thanks for listening to Crypto Sapiens. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give us a follow, like, and a five-star review wherever you enjoy your podcast. And stay tuned for our next discussion.